Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, cryptocurrencies and cybersecurity. We'll get a cryptocurrency exchange executive's perspective on the Quadriga CX scandal. And 440, that's the average number of cyber attacks organizations in Canada experience each year. We'll speak to scalar decisions about how to remain cyber resilient at your company. Coming up on Thursday, February 21st, we're going to be exploring the due diligence and valuation involved with buying a business. If you ever considered selling a business, this is the best place to be. We're going to walk through all of the elements that buyers take into account when looking for acquisitions. Our panel will also share insights into what can make or break a deal. I'll be moderating and I hope to see some of you there. And once you've mastered how to buy a business, you can join us on February 28th to learn how to successfully exit business. This is our annual Retirement Ready panel. We'll walk through how to retire well, wealthy, and healthy. Both events are in the afternoon at the Shangri-La Hotel. More information on those events and our other events is available at BIV.com slash events. You're listening to BIV Today. Quadriga CX is a Vancouver-based company that says it's out of money. Where the money went, why it has disappeared is being debated in court this week. Some 115,000 traders, though, are asking where and how they can get back $260 million. This is a big story that's developing by the day. I'm joined this morning by Michael Vogel, founder of NetCoins, which is a Vancouver-based cryptocurrency exchange, to talk a little bit more about this. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. I think everyone's wondering what happened here, but maybe you can shed some light on how something like this could happen. Yeah, so it's an extremely bizarre story. Um, so avid crypt- cryptocurrency users that have been using Quadrig over the last year have, have noted issues with slow withdrawal times, not being able to take funds out, uh, or taking a long time for deposits to be credited. Um, but to make things even more complicated and confusing, uh, this New story emerged about their founder uh, mysteriously dying in India, and apparently, along with that, access to his laptop and uh, and passwords and private keys, which uh, apparently contained the the keys to the kingdom, which uh, is about 190 million dollars of funds that were stored on uh, on Quadriga CX. Mm-hmm. So uh, very bizarre indeed. Uh, unusual that a company of that size would uh, would only have one person to uh, to to manage that that uh, amount of funds. So it's left a lot of people wondering: Is this a scam? Is uh, is this real? And uh, more importantly, you know, as a customer, how can we get our funds back? Exactly, a lot of people waiting for answers. And to me, this really highlights the regulatory environment, or maybe the lack of regulations around products like this. Tell me a little bit about how a cryptocurrency exchange and the regulations around that differs from, say, a more traditional exchange. Yeah, so essentially a, a cryptocurrency exchange allows users to buy, sell, and, and trade Bitcoin. Uh, it's, it's a lot like a stock exchange um, or like, like an online banking account where you would trade stocks and, and, uh, and bonds and whatnot, um, but with the added difference that you can then withdraw the, the Bitcoins from that exchange. Uh, as opposed to a stock exchange, you can't really withdraw anything right. from there. So uh, the problem is when, uh, when you have funds on an exchange, uh, you're essentially giving control of your Bitcoin to that exchange. So uh, if, if you and I uh, were to download a what's called a Bitcoin wallet, uh, like an app on our phone, 
and store Bitcoins there, uh, we're essentially in total control of those coins. But when you're using a third party like an exchange, when coins are stored there, you're essentially giving them control. And so um, you have no real way to access funds without their permission. And so what uh, what has happened here is obviously um, when the, the company essentially loses access to those coins, you as a user have, have no way to, to reach them either. So um, what it's what this story has really done is given us a, a, another reminder of uh, how different Bitcoin is compared to traditional stocks and other investment tools where essentially with Bitcoin, you become your own bank. You're responsible for controlling your Bitcoins. And so if you are going to use an exchange, uh, the best practice really is just use it for that purpose of buying and selling. Um, don't store coins there long term. Um, Although you know you would hope to think that a, a company like Quadriga with 190 million in assets would would have had better protections, but literally they didn't. So uh, what uh, what people recommend uh, is basically don't store things with a, with a third party long term. Right, that sounds like good advice, and it also, as you pointed out, I mean it framing it like becoming your own bank puts a lot of onus and responsibility on an individual to really understand what they're buying and how those systems work. Tell me a little bit about how the regulatory frameworks in countries is evolving around products like Bitcoin, because governments and securities commissions, to some extent, have been scrambling a little bit to catch up, it seems. No, for sure. I mean, so in Canada, the the government has essentially taken a wait and see approach in terms of regulation. Uh, That's been the policy for many years. there may be some some um, future reg- the regulation coming, just in terms of how customers are are identified and, and record keeping. Um, but in in general, um, Bitcoin is is a very different animal. Uh, it's it's designed separate from traditional banking frameworks and financial regulation. Um, you know, the, the, the countries like China and, and other countries around the world have at, at various times attempted to quote unquote ban Bitcoin. But really, because it's just an, an internet token, uh, it, it's not really feasible to, to ban or, or control it because it's not really controlled by a, uh, one, one company. Like, like Bitcoin itself isn't owned by Microsoft or like a, like a standalone company that can be shut down. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, what, it's what's called a, a decentralized currency. So uh, attempts to regulate it may, may simply be futile and, and may not even be necessary in, in, in the traditional way that, that uh, we think of regulation. But um, yeah, so that, that's sort of my, my initial thought on that. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm curious, do you think a case like this where it's affected a large number of people, there's a lot of money at stake, might it turn some heads in government offices to say, well, you know, maybe it's difficult to regulate, but this wait and see approach, maybe we've waited and now we're going to see what we can do? Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, stories like this definitely aren't aren't good for Bitcoin in general. They don't uh, they don't boost uh, confidence, uh, although <laughs> Bitcoin itself wasn't actually compromised in, in the story. You know, Bitcoin was was not packed or or uh, or, or um, you know, stolen or disappeared. It was mm-hmm. it's basically as a result of Quadriga's intervention. So Bitcoin itself is still robust. But, yeah, what it does really bring up is, uh, is you know, if, if a, a cryptocurrency exchange is going to operate in a, in a country like Canada or the United States, um, perhaps there should be more clearly defined rules about how funds are stored or, uh, you know, insurance policies. Uh, you know, obviously banks, personal bank accounts are, are insured by CDIC up to $100,000. So you know, if the bank disappears or goes bankrupt, then, then there's at least some insurance coverage there. 
Mm-hmm. So policies, policies like that might be interesting. We, we may see stuff like that uh, happening in the years going forward. Um, but, you know, the, the flip side is any type of new technology, you don't necessarily want to overregulate because it's, you sort of run the risk of, uh, of stifling innovation, right? So, I mean, think about the internet when it came out. Um, there actually were, were periods of, of uh, controversy uh, around things like encryption and, uh, you know, who, who gets to, to control the con- uh, encryption algorithms. Uh, there, there was big stories with the, the Bill Clinton government back in the 90s about, uh, about control of the internet. And, uh, you know, if we think about it, the internet was overregulated way back in the day, then the internet of today probably wouldn't exist. And so uh, hardcore Bitcoin fanatics, um, you know, have that same feeling, right? You know, Bitcoin is, is very, very revolutionary technology at, at, its, at its fundamental. Um, so if we overregulate it, do we, do we ruin the, uh, the potential future of, of what it promises? Mm-hmm. Where, where do we find ourselves at the start of 2019 when it comes to the cryptocurrency craze and the Bitcoin craze that we saw over the last couple of years? It seemed like there are so many companies popping up, so many exchanges, ways to buy and sell and trade and do whatever you want. That seems to have died down a little bit. What's your take on what's happened in the industry? Yeah, it's very interesting. So I've been in the, in the space since uh, late 2013 or early 2014 when I, when I founded Netcoin. And um, yeah, the, 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 the industry has gone through many phases. So uh, when I started in it, uh, Bitcoin is really just thought of as this obscure, weird nerd money. It was trading for around $200 a coin. Uh, people thought, you know, that there's no real application here. It's just a, a very, very niche audience. Um, but you get different, different types of users entering the ecosystem over the years. And obviously, last year, or sorry, the year before 2017, we saw Bitcoin cross $1,000 uh, US for one coin. And then later on in the year, it crossed $10,000 for one coin, and it almost reached $20,000 for, for one coin. So uh, 2017 was probably the first year that it really entered, quote unquote, the mainstream, uh, at least the initial wave of that. And obviously, people watch the price of Bitcoin, and when it's up and down, it, it causes uh, big emotional stirs. But I mean, it, it's it's still a very new asset, right? I mean, if, if we look at the, the daily volume of uh, Bitcoins that are traded versus uh, the daily volume of MasterCard payments or Visa payments, uh, Bitcoin is still uh, an emerging industry. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think, you know, we'll see hiccups like this along the way as, as the industry figures itself out. The stories like the, the Quadrigas of the world and, you know, Quadriga isn't the first exchange to go down, uh, will be hacked, et cetera. So I think these types of stories, while they're bad, there are learning outcomes from this. You know, it helps customers learn better ways to store their Bitcoins and it, and it helps the industry grow up in general. Of, uh, of best practices, right? I mean, every currency, cryptocurrency exchange doesn't want to end up like Quadriga. They, they want to uh, have better protection and uh, better controls. And you know, even internally at Netcoins, it's a discussion that, uh, that, that we've had many times. It was, you know, we were shocked when we learned about the Quadriga story because obviously, uh, you know, our company isn't set up that way and, and other large companies like CoinSquare, Coinbase, et cetera, aren't set up that way either. So, um, yeah, I think the industry definitely has to mature, and uh, I think it's only good good things ahead. And I think for anyone investing in Bitcoin or Bitcoin related companies, um, I think you know we still have a very very blue sky future ahead of us. Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show to shed some light on what's going on here. We may have to have you back in a week or so when we find out more what's going on with this case. But for now, really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Oh, for sure, at any time. That's Michael Vogel, founder of Netcoins, based here in Vancouver.
Canadian organizations on average experienced 440 cyber attacks over the last year that and recovery costs after those attacks has reached an all-time high. The 2019 Scalar Security Study is out. It's its fifth annual iteration. And Theo Van Wick, the company's chief technology officer of security, joins me now on the line from Toronto to discuss how companies can build greater cyber resilience. Theo, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. So looking at this survey, you you surveyed more than 400 IT professionals across industries in small through to enterprise organizations and found 100% of them had experienced a cyber attack over the last year. Is this the new normal? Is this to be expected? You know what it is? It's actually um, it's actually very interesting. Uh, to your point, you know, this is the fifth iteration of us doing the uh, annual study. And every year we've seen high percentages of reports in terms of numbers of organizations attacked and breached. Uh, but this year it actually astounded us when we found for the first time that 100% of our respondents reported being attacked and in some form impacted uh, with an incident. Uh, you know, we believe, unfortunately, this is the new norm. Uh, at the same time, I don't think this is as new. I think we're becoming more aware as organizations and we're becoming better at detecting and tracing this. But it is definitely setting the tone that uh, cyber resilience is, is becoming more and more important and critical for Canadian organizations. And how would you define the term cyber resilience? What does that mean? You know, it's in our, traditionally in our field, we tend to talk about cybersecurity, um, and that has been historically the theme of a lot of studies. The challenge for us with cybersecurity because it it places customers and uh, employees in the concept of a pure defensive strategy where they're just thinking about strategies to prevent. And once that fails, then the cybersecurity program effectively has failed. The reality is, uh, as we see here, companies are breached all the time. And so cyber resilience for us becomes a frame of mind. It becomes a state of readiness where defense is a very important and critical part of that strategy. But ultimately, it's about thinking holistically about how do we deal with attacks and situations so that we can survive that attack and that it's business as usual and we can carry on. Uh, we always use the, the cold the cold or the flu analogy, if you will, where we tell people that at some stage in your life, you will get a cold or a flu. Uh, it's really critical is how you prevent that, right? There's a preventative element to that. But if you do then get sick or you're not feeling well, it's detecting it. It's understanding where, where the issue lies and identifying it and then having a response plan. So understanding how you treat yourself and how you overcome that. And while that might be a simple analogy, we find that's very applicable as you start thinking about cyber resilience for companies. Sticking with that analogy, this study points out that the costs of curing these colds are rising year over year. It looks like it costs companies on average between $4.8 and $5.8 million after a cyber breach has occurred. Tell me why these costs are rising and very typically how companies respond, maybe what some of the challenges are too in responding to these attacks. Absolutely. So you're correct. We have noticed a rise in the, in the numbers. Now, the one thing to be very honest and upfront about is there's a great variation in how com companies calculate these costs. But the reality is what we're seeing is attackers are getting more effective at getting into the networks. They're getting more effective at getting at the data. So, and, and then just companies are becoming more aware of the impact that this is actually having on their, on their uh, networks and on their services. So I think it's a combination of the attacks are increasing in effectiveness, but it, as a whole, as an organ, as a, as an industry, we're becoming better at defining it and realizing what the challenges are we actually have on hand. 
one of the interesting figures that we try to drive out, because personally, I always struggle with these large numbers when you see this in a study. Uh, so what we try to do is we drive a number that highlights the per employee cost for a breach average. So this year, we found it to be around $2,677 or about $2,700 an employee. And that's important because if you're a smaller company or, you know, depending on how you picture your company, you can do a quick bit of mental math and plug those numbers in there. And I have a number that perhaps is a little bit more relevant to you. Uh, but the reality is it doesn't matter how we slice or dice it. It's the, the downtime and the impact are significant to companies. Um, in terms of asking like, what companies can do, uh, you know, there's the security basics. And, and one of the key findings and recommendations that we drive here is work on your cyber resilience program. And that just means like, thinking through things like an incident response plan, just having a response ready uh, so that you're not caught off guard. And, um, you know, so you walk through that step, you think, how do I prepare? How do I repent? Where is my important asset? And then have that response plan ready so that you can jump in and address it and, and minimize the impact that the actual breach has on your organization. So it would be just like having, say, a crisis communications plan or an emergency prepared preparedness plan, except you would have that in the case of cyber threats. Correct. Yes. So this is something where a lot of our customers work with either ourselves or with their security partners. And what they're doing here is they're building that up. And it's, a, it's a, an all-encompassing program. So this includes things like your PR response, like how, how's your public relations response, uh, what's the legal aspect. So it goes further than just the technology, but then obviously a very integral part is like, how do I contain that threat from a technology perspective? And who are the, re- the correct key, key and stakeholders that I have to bring in very quickly and effectively to contain uh, that breach and to return to a trusted normal state? On that point of containment, the report points out that one potential vulnerability when it comes to issues like this is third-party security. So even if you yourself tend to be a a very cyber secure or resilient organization, if you're dealing with companies that aren't, that could be a risk. What kind of recommendations do you have for companies in terms of how they work with their partners? So absolutely right. Um, It's a a massive issue and and you don't start to to further your point, if we think about some of the large uh, breaches that's occurred in the, the last little while, uh, we think of the Best Buys and the Home Depots and the brand names, but very few people can actually name the third-party organization that caused the breach behind the big label, if mm-hmm. you will. So it's definitely something to be aware of. What we recommend there is understand your partners. Um, it becomes part of that cyber resilience and that security strategy, right? And it's looking at things like, does the third-party vendors or organizations have access only to the data that they really need access to. Um, you know, what are their internal security controls? Do they have a good security posture? Uh, because obviously, if you're working with somebody and you're giving them access to this deep into your network or secured or trusted spaces, and they do not have a good posture, um, that's something to be concerned about. And as part of that, there's a number of governance frameworks and security frameworks that uh, companies these days will adhere to and get certified against. And that really becomes, to some extent, approved to just so show that they have security um, in in mind when they're st- structuring their services uh, and then when they interact with you as well. Mm-hmm. One of the recommendations in the report as well is identifying and classifying data assets. And the study found that some of the attacks are quite significant on companies. They either had their data stolen, deleted, encrypted. I mean, these can be very, very serious privacy issues and operational issues. What does it mean to identify and classify assets and how can that actually help in situations like this? So when we work with our customers, we would typically recommend uh, a threat risk assessment as a first step. And that threat risk assessment does exactly this. So it identifies the asset 
and it ties a business function to it so that you can start understanding if this computer or this server or this device or this area of the network gets compromised, what does that translate to in a business process for me? Is it impacting actual customer-facing services? Is this where like sensitive data lives? And so, you know, the first step in that is just, it's really difficult to protect what you don't understand or if you don't know that you have it or you don't have that visibility. So that first step is understand your business and how your business is using data and the different services. And then we design your security plan around that so that you you secure the critical assets in the diff- different areas. But it also becomes very important in your response plan and understanding uh, when and how quickly you should respond and uh, and how you should apply your tactics. The, the other item where it becomes really important too is it helps you prioritize your security spend. Because let's face it, we're not, we do not have unlimited pockets. So at some stage you have to decide where and how you place your dollars so that you actually improve that security posture. And this is really key is, you know, how do you apply those dollars if you don't understand where the proverbial crown jewels or important information is residing? Right. That's the challenge there, not having unlimited <laughs> funds. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Um, Thinking of small businesses who are often going to be takers of technology and services, working with companies that are much larger than them, relying on their services and products, that kind of then means that they're assuming these companies are doing their own due diligence and taking steps necessary to be cyber resilient. In the shoes of a a small company or, or entrepreneur, what can they do to make sure that the partners they work with are secure and that they're doing everything they can to keep their operations safe? So I think, you know, develop a relationship, like ask the question. Um, I understand sometimes being a smaller firm, that's not always possible. It's not always possible to have the ear of the, the larger organization. Um, but again, this is something where you can then fall back on, on looking at certifications, you know, if somebody missed or ISO 27001 or some form of framework certified um, that will actually attest to the fact that they, that they are adhering to security principles and they are thinking about it. And then on the flip side, um, you know, there's something to be said about the self-awareness. We just talked about the threat risk assessment and understanding what your processes and your data looks like and understanding when you're partnering with these larger firms, what, to what extent do they have access to your technology or to your information and what the possible implications are about it. And it is something, unfortunately, that you have to assess on a case-to-case basis and be aware of. But in general, uh, we find that the landscape, the temperature of the landscape has changed and most organizations now realize the criticality of having that security uh, approach or that security narrative. So it, fortunately, it is becoming a lot more, a lot easier and a lot more convenient to establish that. And a final question, what should we be looking out for? You know, my quarantine folder does a pretty good job of keeping out fishy emails, but when it comes to more sophisticated attacks, what should employees and employers be looking for and wary of? So if we, if we focus on the employee side, um, definitely, you know, you coined the number one, like phishing is still such a massive attack. It remains the human element. Uh, it's always the area that attackers love to exploit. And for that, it's just have an inquisitive mind. Uh, we find a lot of times a lot of interesting attacks have been thwarted because somebody asked the right question. So if you get that email from finance asking you to transfer $20,000 and it happens to be just under the limit that needs approval, you know, pick up the phone, give, give the CFO a quick call and say, hey, just are you sure this is the amount I need to transfer? Uh, you know, it's such a simple measure, uh, but it, like little items like that really does help. And then to employers, it's just a matter of uh, invest in your training programs. One of the study results we had, we found is that there's still a significant amount of companies. We're talking about around 30% 
that's lo- that's lacking training programs for employees, security awareness, and other. And you know, invest in your employees. They are your main line of defense. They're also the area that, that a lot of attackers will come into contact first in uh, in one form or another. And the, the benefits to that then becomes those same principles are things to your point that you take back to your home inbox or to your own digital life. Because let's face it, we're not we're not getting less technology integrated every day. Uh, so you know, be aware of those things. Practice some of those own principles on your own home and personal security, and make that make it a habit, make it a way of thinking, so that um, you have that exquisite mind and ask the questions. Uh, one other key item for employers too is just get a process in place that educates employers to report and ask questions. So if if there's no you know if it's not a case where you can talk to that direct contact, have a one eight hundred number or a helpline or an inbox where an employee can fire a quick question and get a, a, a response in a decent time frame to just report or just ask a question if they, if they are curious or if they find something that is suspicious. Theo Van Wick is the Chief Technology Officer of Security at Scalar Decisions. Theo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to all of our episodes and read, watch, listen to more business news at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back after the long weekend on Tuesday. <laughs>